I probably could have clicked it, but um, we have been studying Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, very interesting chapter. Jesus at the beginning chooses the 12 apostles. Then he sends them out on their first short-term mission trip to go to the cities on the northern part of Israel. And he gives them specific instructions about that local mission trip. But then as he goes further in in, uh, Matthew chapter 10, he uh, basically expands upon the worldwide mission and it applies to us also. And he points out that we're going to experience some opposition, some persecution, some martyrdom, and some death. All right? And those are just the good things. Then, uh, last week we looked at the fact that he says, I am sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Now, at this point, you're probably going, all right, I get it. Uh, I accept it. I'm going to die. Um, is there any encouragement in the chapter? Well, today he gives us four reasons why you don't need to worry about being persecuted. All right? So um, let's take a look. Matthew 10, 24 through 31. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. But if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Father, um, I know there are people here this morning who need encouragement. And while this chapter seems like a discouragement, right in the middle of it, There's encouragement of why we don't need to fear what man can do to us. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that you would apply this to every person here and we would walk away encouraged and strengthened and most of all, trusting more in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here is a letter from a person uh, who says, I used to be a Christian and I'm walking away from Christianity. And they give the reason why. Take a look. I'm no longer a Christian. I'm no longer marching in the Christian army. For I have found something different. I have found a purpose that is good, that is as good on Monday as it is on Sunday. Life without Christianity can be far more fulfilling than anything that I have ever found inside of Christianity. And there are hundreds of others who testify to the same thing. I am not a Christian and I am happy. They're happy and they're fulfilled. Have you found joy in Christ? I'm glad you're happy. But tell me something, please. Why do so many Christians struggle to find that joy? Where is their peace? Why are they so discouraged? Fire up your search engine 
and search for sad, discouraged, depressed Christians. What do you find? As I write this, I find 576,000 sites. They are written by Christians to help sad, depressed Christians. Why are all of these people trying to help discourage Christians? It seems that there is a problem. Now, if you were to study that and ask, what is their reason for rejecting Christianity as true, you would see that they have bought into a false gospel. They're not rejecting true Christianity. They're rejecting the false Christianity that I kind of warn us about on a regular basis. The problem is this person seems to think that the gospel is not Jesus came to die on a cross to rescue you from the wrath of God. That's not the gospel. The gospel that they're rejecting is the gospel that says accept Jesus so he can make you happy, purposeful, and fulfilled. Notice the words, purpose, fulfilling, happy, happy, joyful, peaceful. They were sold a false gospel that says, come to Jesus, and he's like Novocaine. He'll take all the pain away. And that's a pretty appealing thing, because people want Novocaine, right? People want to be relieved of their pain, so they come to Jesus, and guess what they find? Not only does it not necessarily all go away, when you follow Jesus, it sometimes gets worse, Right? They're not rejecting the gospel that says, come to Jesus because you realize you're a sinner standing under the wrath of God and you need a Savior to deliver you from His wrath. That's the true gospel. And by the way, when you do come to Christ and you are delivered from the wrath of God, you know what? There is a joy. There is a fulfillment. There is a happiness, uh, a, a joy and a peace that comes from God but not necessarily from the world around you. Jesus is very honest. He doesn't try to sell you into following him. He's very honest that uh, a true follower is going to experience persecution and trouble because of him. If you buy the false gospel, I guarantee you're going to fall away at some point because there's no way that this can deliver. Now, Jesus made it very clear. We're going to face persecution. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you. And then he says, what about your family? Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Very, very honest. Now, some of the, uh, the salespeople amongst us will say, oh, this is really bad sales technique here. I mean, when you sell something, you want to highlight the benefits and downplay the negative. And here, he's just coming right out and saying, if you follow me, your family may disintegrate. You may be flogged. You may be persecuted. Jesus, could you just kind of cover that up? And Jesus says, no, I'm going to tell the truth. Why does Jesus have the audacity to tell you the truth and still expect people to follow him? 
because he knows that those who are truly being drawn to him will hear this, they will count the cost, and they will go, the treasure of following Christ is far greater than the trouble that following Christ will produce. But he makes it very clear that when you follow Christ, there will be trouble. You go, okay, I got it. Is there any good news? (laughs) Is there anything encouraging that that can come out of this persecution. Yes, in this chapter, he gives you four reasons why you don't need to fear persecution. All right? And you can fill in the blanks. The first one is this. When you experience persecution, there's a confirmation of your salvation that comes along with it. All right. You can rejoice when persecution hits. Why? Because persecution is a confirmation of your salvation. Um, you've heard my story before. I got saved at age 19. And um, I wasn't a wild kid, but I knew what the unsaved Christian life was like, and I knew what uh, swear words to use, and uh, I had tasted enough of the, uh, uh, the high life, You know, I wasn't sheltered, so I went away to school. I went away to Northern Illinois University. I heard the gospel. And, you know, I didn't didn't announce to the world that I am born again and you're all going to hell. You know, God just started to slowly transform me. First thing he did was he cleaned up my language. Then um, he kind of changed my reading habits. I I, I wanted to read the Bible now. And I really kind of liked the church I was going to. So I would go on Sundays and, uh, and Wednesdays, and um, guess what? People started to notice a little bit of change in me. And um, then, not only friends, but family uh, would start to be sarcastic to me. Oh, the Bible thumper. Okay. Oh, Brian's got religion. Okay. And um, the persecution started. Why? Because my change of life exposed their sin. And I remember when uh, I first encountered this, I remember having this thought, this hurts, but it also feels good. Right? This hurts, but it also feels good. Why? Because it confirms that Christ really is real. I don't have to just defend the truth of Christianity from the Bible or from Josh McDowell's apologetic books, but the change going on inside of me that's producing persecution is a confirmation to them that He is real and a confirmation to me that He is real, which is why Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I always like to pause here and say, notice it says persecution for righteousness' sake, not for obnoxiousness' sake, because there are a lot of Christians who go around being really obnoxious, and then people make fun of them, and they go, see, I'm being persecuted for the Lord. No, you're just obnoxious, right? Um, So here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's being confirmed that you're a child of God and you're going to heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Persecution hurts. Okay? But let me tell you what hurts more. Doubting your salvation. Have you ever been in a situation or a period of time where you just wonder if you're truly saved or not? There is nothing more agonizing than not knowing you're saved. You, you, you feel the wrath of God breathing down your neck. Right? Now, one of the gifts that God gives you when you become a Christian is the gift of persecution. You go, what? Yes. When you're being persecuted, you know what that says? That says that Christ in me is real enough that somebody's watching and noticing it and they don't like it. Ah, I'm saved. Okay? Now, here's the problem. Some of us value comfort more than assurance of salvation. And I would say, go for it. Live fully for Christ. The persecution will come. I don't, you don't need to go looking for it. But rather than fearing it, there's something nice about saying, yep, I'm a Christian. He's living inside of me. He's producing such a difference that I'm taking flack at work and from my family. And it's not fun, but it's great. Now, that's what Jesus says here in our, our passage. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Okay? If you are a follower of Christ as your master, you're going to start to become like him. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that's a, another word for Satan, Jesus says, if they've called me the master Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Bottom line, if they're persecuting you, that's a confirmation that you're one of mine because they persecuted me. It's a confirmation of salvation. So that's encouragement number one. All right? Encouragement number two is the word vindication. There is a day of vindication coming. What does that mean? Vindication is a day when everything that is wrong will be made right and everything that is a lie will be corrected with the truth. A day of truth is coming. So here's how he says it. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now he's talking about truth. Right now, the truth of Christianity, as he is speaking, it's, it's kind of undercover. He's teaching a small group of people. All right? But one day, it's all going to be revealed in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. What is, what is the argument here? Don't be afraid to speak the truth, even though it's not politically correct today. Even though people may laugh at you and mock you and ridicule you and even disown you, speak the truth anyways because a day of vindication is coming where the truth will be made so crystal clear 
that those who didn't accept the truth and those who wouldn't speak the truth will be ashamed of themselves. Here's, Here's the question. When you try to talk to people about Christ, or when you try to talk to people about truth, period, is your filter... Hmm, I wonder how they'll react. Is that your first concern? How are people going to react? And if that is your first concern, you're going to hide the truth, you're going to compromise the truth. And I would say we need to switch from how will it affect people, how will they react, to what's it going to be like for me on Vindication Day when all the truth is made crystal clear? Am I going to be ashamed on Vindication Day? Or vindicated on Vindication Day. Let me uh, let me apply this to sp- to some specific issues. Okay, apply it to uh, to church, to the way Christians think. Um, let's take a couple of really politically incorrect issues. First one, abortion. Okay. By the way, in January, um, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. It was a couple Sundays ago, and we did a sermon on on abortion. Um, but not everyone does sermons on abortion because, man, that is just a touchy, um, ooh, uncomfortable topic for a lot of people. And I came across this blog, Randy Elkhorn. He's written a number of books, uh, The Treasure Principle. Elkhorn says this, If the pastor still refuses to open God's word and talk about defending the rights of the poor and needy and fatherless, and including unborn children in that, then I think he too should resign, along with all members of the church board who lobby against dealing with abortion from the pulpit. If you lack the conviction or courage to stand up and say to your church who you are accountable to lead, it's wrong to kill unborn babies, God hates it and God will judge it, then you should not be a pastor. If you don't have the guts to say these are children, we must stop killing them, then you need to do something that doesn't even pretend to take on a biblical and prophetic mantle. Again, he's saying, what's your job? Is it to please people and ask, how will they react if I bring up this touchy thing? Or is it to please God who has given us his truth and his word and one day it will be made so crystal clear that there will be no question, which one are you looking to more? How people will react or to what it will be like on Vindication Day? We have gotten, the American church has gotten into such a mess because we're more concerned with how people will react than what it will be like on Vindication Day. Another real touchy issue, um, it's okay to talk about Jesus, but here's where you get into real trouble. When you say, Jesus isn't just good for me, you need him or you'll go to hell. Woo. Now we've crossed over from uh, the postmodern idea that you can have your truth, I can have my truth, and everybody can be happy, to I'm right and you're wrong and you're going to hell if you don't receive Christ. Now, the question is, does the Bible really teach that? Yeah, Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you do not explicitly repent of your sins, 
turn to Christ as Savior and receive Him, Jesus Himself says, you're going to hell. Right? Peter says it in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You must be saved by the name of Jesus. Jesus said this, John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, you can't walk away from me and think you're going to heaven. Right? Now, um, I'm going I'm to give you some dialogue that took place on, on Larry King Live, and some of you have seen this before. And I'm not doing this to pick on poor Joel. All right? Well, maybe a little bit. Okay. Um, but I, I'm, I'm doing this to illustrate a point. Okay? Uh, on Larry King, those are the same suspenders he's been wearing for like all his life. Uh, he had Joel Olstein on, who is the pastor of, I think, the largest church in America. And they're talking about positive things and positive mental attitude. And then Larry, who's Jewish, says to Joel, what if you're Jewish or Muslim? You don't accept Christ at all. Now, from what we just read, what should be the answer be? Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? Now, maybe you could say, um, Larry, I know this is a tough thing to deal with, but Jesus did say he is the only way. Now, let me tell you why he's the only way. Let me explain about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and that his sacrifice is the only way we can be, uh, we can be made right before a holy God. And in other words, use it as an opportunity to explain why this is true. But what did he say? You know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. So Larry comes back. If you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> Larry's probably not as postmodern as, as you might think. He's saying, wait a minute, if this is true, then this must be false, right? Joel says, well, I don't know if I believe that they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, that's what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I don't know. For me, and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Now, you go, oh, boy, he just, he just muffed that punt, right? He, but maybe if he's given a second chance to clarify and redeem what he said, he'll straighten it out. So later on, a caller calls. Caller, hello, Larry, you're the best. And thank you, Joe, or Joel, for your positive messages and your book. So we, right here, we know this is not the most theologically discerning person on the planet. right? But now look what they do. I'm wondering, though, why you sidestepped Larry's earlier question about how to get to heaven. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. It's actually the life. but you know. And the only way to the Father is through him. That's not really a message of condemnation, but of truth. Now, they got it. They got the right verse, right? They, uh, they put it together. If Jesus said he's the only way, then all the other ways don't work, okay? 
So Joel says, yes, I would agree with her. I believe that. So now Larry comes back and says, so then a Jew's not going to heaven. <laughs> well, now Joel goes, wait a minute. Now I got Larry here who's a Jew, and there's a bunch of Jews listening. And, uh, ooh, uh, how do, ooh, uh, and he goes, no, here's my thing. <laughs> here's my thing, Larry is I can't judge somebody's heart, you know. Only God can look at somebody's heart, and so I don't know. Oh, we're back to I don't know. To me, it's not my business to say, you know, this one or this one isn't, this one is or this one isn't. I just say, here's what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, and I just think it's wrong when you go around saying, you're saying you're not going, you're not going, you're not going, because it's not exactly my way. I'm just... That's it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. I agree with that, but you know, it's not my thing to go around judging people. So, I just, I just believe in Jesus. And let's, let's take another caller, right? Now, again, we it's it's easy to beat up Joel Olstein. We don't do it for his theology. We can do it for his mullet, right? But. Um, What, what I want you to see here is why, why would this happen? Because at some point, there was a very specific shift made in the church growth movement from saying, what will it be like on Vindication Day when all truth will be made crystal clear? The shift was... Let's stop looking at that as our primary concern to how are people going to respond? That's it. That, you, you, you talk about where's the American church headed? There was the shift from vindication day to how will people respond? Because if the goal is growth, then we can't be so forthright about the truth. And Jesus says, what I tell you, get up on the rooftop and shout. Why? Because a day of vindication is coming. You don't have to be so concerned about what people are going to think. It will all be made crystal clear. So in your personal witnessing, yes, you have to be tactful. Yes, you have to be loving. You can't use truth as a baseball bat to slam people. But in your loving, compassionate way, are you more concerned about how they're going to react or what the truth is? Right? Make the shift. Make the shift. All right, let me move a little quicker. Gratification. Jesus brings up the issue of delayed gratification. He talks about hell. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, now man can destroy your body. Who is it, though, that can destroy both the soul and body in hell? See, now don't get this wrong. People read that and they go, oh, Satan. No. Who, who, who throws your body and soul into hell? God. Yes. All right. So what he's doing here is he's, he's asking you to consider the lesser of the two pains. Who dishes out lesser pain, man or God? Man. Man can torture you. Man can make you miserable. And then it's over. 
God, on the other hand, can not only torture your body, but your soul forever and ever and ever and ever. Yes, Jesus uses hell as a positive thing. We need to weigh out the pain of persecution versus the pain of hell. Guess what? God wins. God wins, so I will endure the light and momentary suffering here on earth. There was a, uh, an early church father named Polycarp. Sounds like a fish, but it's not. Polycarp. He was actually discipled by John of disciple fame. Right? John discipled him, and he became the bishop of Smyrna, a town that you read about in the book of Revelation. Okay. Polycarp, so he lived in the second century then, most of his life, when he was 86 years old. The governor arrests him. And he's brought before Governor Stadius Quadratus. Did he come up with the quadratic equation? Um, so he interrogates him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Let me read what happens. Polycarp, okay, 86 years old, Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on a witty dialogue with Quadratus until Quadratus lost his temper and threatened Polycarp. He'd be thrown to the wild beast. He'd be burned at the stake and so on. Polycarp just told Quadratus that while his fires last but a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly, he slyly added, as he probably winked at him, right? The fires reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. He said, go ahead, burn me. You know what they did? They tied him to a stake and burned him alive. He's, he's, he's doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. Weigh it out. You got the fires of persecution. You got the fires of hell. I'll take persecution. Right? Now, I know that is, not, uh, that is not the only argument. You, know, you shouldn't just be totally motivated by, I'll choose persecution over hell. But it is an argument that our generation doesn't hear very much. Jesus is not afraid to say, think of what you're being saved from. You can endure a little bit of persecution. Right? Last one, last one. Relax. Relaxation in God's sovereignty. Here he brings up birds. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now, what's the point? Why does he bring up the cost of a sparrow? Well, he's saying they're so worthless that you can get not just one of them, but two of them for a penny. All right? These are just insignificant little creatures. But look what it says. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, some people debate whether this is talking about them flying to the ground or dying and falling to the ground. But regardless of which one it's talking about, the, the flight or the falling pattern of a bird is all under the sovereign will of God. Notice this doesn't just say that he observes it. Okay. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. It doesn't mean apart from your father's observation. 
It's apart from his sovereign will. What is Jesus saying? The things you consider worthless and insignificant, birds falling and flying, that is all under the sovereign will of God. He goes on to talk about hair, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, for me, that's real easy, right? Yeah, (laughs) probably under 10, right? (laughs) Some of you, boy, it's a full-time job for him to, to count all your hair. What's he saying? You go, what does it matter? For some reason, numbering your hair every day matters to God. Okay? See, ladies, there's an argument for hair care. You go, oh, well, God cares about my hair. (laughs) Shell it out. Come on, honey, I need to go to the hairdresser. But then here's his conclusion. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God cares about the sparrows... How much more so does he care about all the details of your life? You know, last week I I mentioned John Patton. John Patton was the Scottish pastor. He lived back in the 1800s. He had a nice, comfortable church in Scotland. He said, I need to reach the cannibals on the New Hebrides Island. So he gets in a ship and he sails to the New Hebrides Island. Um, His wife gives birth, and then both the baby and she die, and he is left there alone with cannibals. And for four years, he tries to reach them to no avail. A ship comes and rescues him. He goes back to Scotland, finds a new wife, and what does he do? He goes back to the New Hebrides Islands to reach cannibals. Now, um, have I ever mentioned a guy named Piper? Piper, John Piper does a biography every year. He, uh, at his conference, he takes a missionary or a great church leader, and he, he expounds on their life. Uh, Piper once did a, a message on uh, John Patton, okay? And um, this is what he writes. In his first four years on Tana, the island of Tana, he was all alone. He moved from one savage crisis to the next. One wonders how his mind kept from snapping as he never knew when his house would be surrounded with angry natives. Our continuous danger caused me... Now, this is Patton writing in his diary. Our continuous danger caused me now oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on that I might start at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha, would give a sharp bark and awake me. God made them, the cannibals... Fear this precious creature and often used her in saving life, which is a great apologetic for why we need a dog, right? <laughs> they keep the cannibals away, right? Okay. All right, so, so he goes on in his, uh, his diary to talk about all these close calls that he has uh, throughout his life. And you go, how could he survive? Answer? He continually reminded himself that every peril he was in was under the sovereign control of God. Uh, One time he was surrounded by raging natives who kept urging one another to attack him first. This is what he writes. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized I was immortal until my master's work with me was done. 
Do you know you have an appointed day with death? And until that day, you are immortal. He had to remind himself, now, this may be my day, but if it's not, cannibals, you know. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which uh, was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. Another time there was a chief who followed him around for four hours with a musket, pointing it at him. He would occasionally shoot it. He said this, Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and again felt immortal until my work was done. So you think your life is stressful. Have a cannibal follow you around with a gun pointed at you. At work tomorrow. Talk about stress, right? Once, some of you go, that's normal. (laughs) Should see my boss, right? Um, Once a native rushed at him with an axe and was ready to split open his head. It says another chief took a shovel to him. Now listen to this. With my trembling hand, clasped in the hand once nailed at Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe in the other hand, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. The nail-pierced hand grabbed his hand and in the other hand, Christ has the scepter by which he rules the universe. Do you believe that? Now, here's the the tough part. You go, that's great for John Patton. Apply it to your stressful situation right now. Does this just work for missionaries or does it work for all of us? Do you believe that the nail-pierced hand of Jesus can hold your hand and the scepter by which he rules the universe is in his other hand and you are in great shape right now because he is sovereign. All right, let me pray for us. Worship team, come on up.